what we want to do this morning is look as Jesus is feasting and forgiving here in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and... You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The gospel of the Lord. Would you pray with me now for the teaching of God's word? Father, we are thankful for this, your word, for you are kind and uh, you're a God who delights to make himself known uh, rather than be hidden. And so, Father, we ask that your spirit would be with us now as we look at this, your word, that you would teach us lovely things about you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Yeah, this summer, uh, my wife and I embarked on a new journey. It's called a garden and, uh, and so when we decided that we wanted to have a garden, we went to some feed and seed store out east, and we bought a lot of dirt, and we bought some hay bales, and a friend gave us a bunch of seeds, they gave us squash and cucumbers and green beans and lettuce, and not just okra, not just any, like, stinking okra, but Clemson okra. Uh, I was disappointed that the okra's not orange. Uh, it's still green, but it's uh, really good. And anyway, so I built these raised beds, uh, not out of wood, but out of the hay bales, and then I just filled, uh, I filled it in with dirt, and then we put the seeds in the dirt, and we just sort of waited. It was amazing, because as we're waiting, you know, it's just dirt, and then all of a sudden you see, like, a little sprout. And the sprout becomes a baby sprout, and that baby sprout becomes a baby plant, and that baby plant becomes a real plant, and then that real plant becomes a plant that's bearing fruit. And so all summer, we were able to have these homegrown vegetables. We thought that was pretty cool, right, because we've never done that before, and so we felt kind of urban, hippie chic uh, with our little garden in the middle of the city. And, And watching these plants just sort of essentially come out of what seemed to be nowhere was amazing for us, because 
from little tomato seed, tomato plant, like hundreds of tomatoes. Like from one little cucumber seed, we got like 20 huge cucumbers. From a little basil seed, we have this now five foot, three foot wide basil uh, tree. Uh, And from a little okra seed, those things grow tall. I mean, they're like six feet. We have like four, six foot tall okra plants in our backyard. And it's crazy to think about that so much life could come from a tiny little seed. Now, what does that have to do with this passage? Uh, Well, in this passage, one of the things that we're learning, one of the things that we're being taught by Jesus is that faith is the seed of love. That faith is actually the seed of love. Uh, I want you to notice in verse 50, Jesus says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And the salvation that is being described here, the salvation that Jesus is referring to is that forgiveness that leads to love. You see this in verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for therefore she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. In other words, what Jesus is teaching us here is that love flows from faith. And so what I wanna think about this morning is that faith loves, right? And we should do this in a couple ways. Uh, We should first think about faith, and then we'll think about love. Right, faith loves, so let's begin with faith. You know, it's been said uh, many times in many ways um, that everyone believes something, right? Everyone believes something, and there's this great meme out there, and it says, everyone believes in something, I believe I'll have another beer. And uh, it's kind of funny, right? I mean, and uh, it's, it's a joke, right? And, uh, but even this joke is sort of getting at something that's really powerful, that Everyone has something that orders their lives and directs what they love. It might be beer. It might be college football. Uh, And therefore, on Saturdays in the fall, your yard can grow tall, your house can fall apart, your children can move out, but I'm going to watch the Clemson Tigers, right? Uh, Or the the Vols, or the UT Vols, because they're back. Um, You know, (laughs) uh, they're well on their way to a state championship. Uh, and, uh, and it could be, right, it could, you know, like, you know, we all, like, give ourselves to things. It could be another human that we love. It could be your job. It could be money. Uh, it could even be uh, yourself. And in our story, what we have is we have these two main characters. We have uh, the Pharisee and the prostitute, or we have the sinner and the saint. And both of them are expressing their faith, If you've been around the Bible for a while, uh, you'll know that the Bible in Hebrews 11 uh, defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And so oftentimes, when we think about faith, we think about believing in that which is invisible, right? And so when we think about faith, we think about uh, that which is unseen, And in some ways, that's true, right? I mean, if you're a Christian and you believe in God and you believe in Jesus, you have not seen him, right? We haven't seen him in the same ways that this woman saw him, nor even in the way that Simon saw him, but we trust the testimony, right? We trust the testimony of the apostles who did see him, and we trust uh, their word, which has been recorded in the scriptures, and we trust the history of the church as they have borne witness to the work of God throughout the ages. Or we think about C.S. Lewis and we believe 
as he said, like we believe the sun has risen, not because uh, I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Or as St. Augustine said, I believe not because I have all understanding, right? I believe not because I see all things, uh, rather I believe that I may understand. We believe, right? And by believing, that shapes our seeing. And so all of us have entered into this mystery of faith in one way or another. Maybe many of you have entered into faith through Jesus. Others have entered into faith through believing that education is going to organize and give meaning to your life. Others of us have faith that justice will give meaning and purpose to your life. Others, it's money or jobs or politics or working out. For others, it's Buddha or Allah or Yahweh. And what we believe, what we trust, what we have faith in is going to shape how you see and it will determine what you love. Now, even more to the point, even if our faith is in something that is invisible, your faith is never invisible. And what I mean by this is that faith always expresses itself. Faith's desire is to express itself. And this is why James was able to say, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The way Paul and the reformers would talk about this is they would say that faith always produces fruit. And so what we want to do is begin looking at the fruit of the faith of Simon And of the faith of the woman. And Simon's fruit flows from his faith, which is a faith not in God, but is a faith in himself. I want you to look at Simon, verse 36. He's a Pharisee. Now, you've got to remember that the Pharisees were absolutely concerned with holiness. And their great sadness was that Israel had become unholy. Right, that Israel had been contaminated, that Israel had become impure because of the Roman occupation and because of the syncretistic practices of God's people. Right, and that was their sadness, the impurity of the culture, the impurity of the people of God. And so their great hope was that they would be ready for the coming of the Lord, that they would not succumb to the impurity of the surrounding culture, but they would remain pure and ready for the coming of the Lord. Now, to be fair, uh, Simon is uh, probably an incredibly religious man, and he is an incredibly moral man. I mean, if you look at the story, Jesus is having the Pharisee over for a meal, which would seem to imply, right, that, that the Pharisee, Simon, is a person of importance. He's one of the religious elite of the city, and he's probably the guy that all the mothers wanted their daughters to marry. He's probably the guy that every teacher would want to write a glowing reference, you know, to go to the University of Tennessee for. Uh, He's probably somebody who knew his Bible well. He's someone who followed the law. He knew the difference between a sin offering and a wave offering and a a guilt offering. Essentially, externally, Simon is the man, right? Simon looks good. He looks good to everybody out there, and he looks good to himself. But here's the deal. God, throughout the Bible, over and over and over and over again, tells us that he doesn't look at the external, but he looks at the heart. That God sees through the facade, and he sees the reality, my wife and I have just, uh, along with a friend, uh, have just finished a renovation of our master bathroom, and it, it's, it's 
pretty amazing. But our bathroom has always been amazing. It's larger than a Hess Hall dorm room. It's one of the reasons that we loved uh, the house that we bought because we had this amazing sort of master suite uh, off the master bedroom, and that's one of the reasons we bought it. But a few months ago, somebody was in the shower. It doesn't matter who. And, uh, uh, but that's not the point. Uh, so someone's in the shower, and I have to go into the crawl space of our house for something. As I go in the crawl space, just water is pouring out of the bathroom floor. It's like a waterfall. And I'm like, what is happening here? So we call a contractor friend. He comes over to try to help us figure out what's wrong. And they take, do the moisture readings. And, and then it's like, it's wet, and we got to figure out what's wrong. And I was like, I know it's wet. And anyway, they start taking off all the tile, right? All the tile has to come off. And then behind the tile is this failed sort of shower system. And we got to take out the shower system. And then behind the shower system is drywall that's like actually wet wall. And it's just sort of rotting. It's nasty. Behind that drywall is some insulation that it used to be pink, but is now not. It's like this color that we shouldn't talk about. And then behind the insulation, you have the studs. Uh, and uh, those are wooden beams, not men or, you know. Uh, but, but, and you have these wooden beams, and they are just kind of covered in a spider web of mold. And then we have to take up the floor, Right, and the floor, like the, the, the joist on the floor, they're beginning to rot out. And we're shocked, right? Because we had looked at this beautiful, modern master bath suite only to realize that before we had ever moved in, that bathroom has been rotting out beneath our feet. That's Simon. Like he looks so good on the outside, but inside he's rotting away. And I think that sadly many of us are often a lot like Simon because... Like Simon and like the Pharisees, we lament the state of our culture and we lament the state of our country and we're disappointed in other Christians who are compromising morally and culturally and because we are a people who are right, right? We're a people who are right. We love the Bible. We believe the Bible's true. We want to orient our lives towards the scriptures and we want to live accordingly. And so our identity becomes about being right, and then you read the Bible, and over and over again, the Bible is telling us that what God loves is a broken and contrite heart. That God's love is actually a broken and contrite heart. And when we look at ourselves, one of the things we realize is that actually our hearts are very hard. And our hearts are hard because we can't admit, we can't repent. We don't have a broken and contrite heart because if we did, we would have to admit we are wrong. And if we admit that we are wrong, that is a t an attack on our fundamental identity. And if I am wrong, if I have been wrong, who am I? Because I've always been right. And I think this is one of the reasons why we get so defensive as people call us to repentance. It's why we get so defensive when people disagree with us. Because deep down in that moment, our faith is being shattered. And it's a faith that's not so much in God, but it's a faith that's in ourselves. It's a faith in being right. And if I'm right, then I'm loved. If I'm right, then I'll be accepted. If I'm right, then God will save me. Or God saves me because I am right. right? And that's the faith of Simon. But this story doesn't stay there. This story begins to shift. And it shifts from Simon to the sinner. And you see this in verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. 
And I think one of my favorite phrases in this passage is, and behold. And behold is this invitation to see someone that all of us want to ignore. Because when, if we were invited to this party, what we want to see and who we want to be with is not the sinner. We want to be with Simon because Simon is pure. Simon is successful. Simon is respectable, right? He is accomplished. And then there's this woman who's a sinner. And she doesn't belong at the meal. She's not supposed to be there. And Luke says, behold, look, see this woman. Because she's the point. Now, what do we know about this woman? We don't know much. What we know is that she's from the city, and we know that she's a sinner. Now, think about that for a moment. Uh, we don't know her name. She's just a sinner. Uh, in a sense, she would be she who must not be named. Because if we knew her name, we would have to see her as a human being. If we knew her name, we would have to see her as someone that we could no longer despise or dismiss. We'd have to see her as a woman made in the image of God. And Luke says, behold, look at her, see her. How would you like to be known as the sinful woman of Old North or the sinful man of West Hills? And what is beautiful is that even though we don't know her name, her name has been recorded in the book of life. Because the gospel tells us over and over again that God's love and forgiveness rest upon sinners. And from a faith in a God who forgives, what we see is love begins to flow. See verse 50, Jesus says your faith has saved you. And then the climax of the passage, which was earlier in verse 47, she loved much because she'd been forgiven much. It is her faith in Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers that is what produces love. Here's a woman who's a sinner. She comes to Jesus with nothing to offer. She's got no righteous deeds. She's got no grand connections. She has no amazing wisdom. But she comes to Jesus corrupted by her own sins and corrupted by the sins of her community. And she comes... As the old hymn would sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And because what she recognizes is it is only Jesus who can cleanse you. It is only Jesus who has the right and the power to forgive you. And so Jesus is the one who has cleansed her. He has washed her clean. And so what does she do? She draws near and she washes his feet with her tears of regret and gratitude. That's what she brings him. Her sadness and her gratitude. She brings her, him her love. And it's out of their faith that both of these people love, right? Simon struggles to love because... He is restless. But the woman loves because she has peace. You see, Simon has a faith, but his faith is in himself. And this faith manifests itself in this never-ending pursuit of a self-salvation. Because as a Pharisee, you can't mess up. Because if you do mess up, then uh, you won't be prepared for God's return. 
And so faith for the Pharisee is this endless treadmill of self-promotion and self-protection. I went back this week and watched the end of uh, Saving Private Ryan. And uh, you, you might remember the movie, uh, the movie set during World War II. Uh, it was a big war that happened years ago. And it was during the invasion of Normandy. And it's about these rangers who are led by Captain John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, of course. Uh, he's in every movie. Uh, and they're searching for Private Ryan, who is the last surviving brother of these four servicemen. Anyway, at the end of the movie, not to ruin it for you, but it came out in like 98, so <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, but at the end of the movie, uh, they, fi- they find uh, Private Ryan uh, and they rescue him. But in doing so, uh, many of the rangers wind up losing their life, including the captain, um, Captain Miller. And as Captain Miller is dying, he's dying and there's Private Ryan and he he motions for Private Ryan to come over, and as he comes over, he grabs him by, the, by, the, by his jacket, and he pulls him close to him. And as he's dying, Captain Miller says, earn this. He says, earn this. And what he's saying is, earn the salvation that we have given to you. And then he dies. Now, that's how many of us view Christianity Jesus has saved us, now we must earn it. And that's what the Pharisees, uh, that's how the Pharisees see God. They, they believe that God has promised salvation and now they have to earn it. And it's exhausting. And so rather than living out of love and gratitude, they live a life of struggle and proving and attaining and earning rather than living out of love. They live out of fear of not doing enough and losing that which Christ has already done. But what I want you to notice is that Jesus turns to the woman. He turns away from Simon the Pharisee. He turns to the woman in verse 48, and he says, Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Jesus offers peace because he is the one who accomplishes our salvation. Simon also struggles to love uh, because he has to be in control. And this woman who has been loved now gives herself in vulnerability. I think one of the scariest things about uh, trusting in someone other than yourself or trusting in God is that uh, he will always disrupt your life. Like to trust in God means that you're recognizing that he is the one who is in control and you aren't. And Simon can't handle that. And I think many of us struggle to handle that because it's scary. That God is truly in control and we are not. And therefore, we love to live our lives, right, uh, controlling our environments, trying to keep everything clean and tidy, And we love to include those that we like, and we want to exile those that we don't like, uh, because what we want for every minute of the day is to know what to expect. I want to know what to expect now, and in five minutes, and in 10 minutes, and in 20 years. And I want to be able to have all the answers at every moment. Simon invites Jesus to his house, and Jesus blows it up, right? Simon approaches Jesus in this controlled way. He, he does his duty, but he keeps his distance. 
He, he has the guest preacher of the city over for a meal, but he doesn't offer him any love. And Jesus sees this in him, and he calls him out on it. Verse 44, you gave me no water for my feet. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss. Verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil. You see, Simon gives nothing because he has nothing to give. He's too busy controlling the situation. He's too busy trying to control his own life that he doesn't have anything to offer. He can't offer his life because he's so busy controlling it. But I want you to notice the woman, she's completely vulnerable. I mean, she goes to the extreme to be with Jesus. She does all this stuff. She crashes a party. She's not invited. She barges in. She falls at his feet. She washes his feet, not with water, but with her tears. She dries his feet, not with a towel, but with her hair. She anoints his feet, not with oil, but with ointment. And this alabaster jar of ointment was probably her scent. Uh, ointment jars at the time were worn by women, usually often sinful women, uh, to sort of sweeten their breath and to perfume their bodies. Uh, you can sort of think about it like when you're in high school and you would wear your boyfriend's uh, sweatshirt because you loved, you know, and you'd put it over, you'd sleep with it over your face, you know, and smell him and his dracar that he was wearing. Um, but uh, so what's happening, I don't have experience with that, I've heard about it. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but uh, so anyway, so what she's doing is she's pouring herself out upon him and she's giving her very self to him, right? And uh, what she's done is she sort of barged in to express her love and she doesn't care who knows it. Sort of like when Elf barges into his dad's office and he spins around and he throws his hat and he says, I'm in love, I'm in love and I don't care who knows it, right? That's what she's doing. Um, and then finally, what we see is that Simon sort of struggles uh, to love uh, because he has a critical spirit, but she is filled with gratitude. You see, Simon understands himself as the Pharisee, as the great gatekeeper, and therefore he lives a life in which he evaluates everyone else. And we see this clearly as the sinful woman is pouring herself out to Jesus this beautiful expression of love and of gratitude, and, she, and Simon stands off to the side, and he just evaluates it. And he judges her, and who else does he judge? He judges Jesus for allowing it to happen. See it in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, see here, he's, he's got one person that he can confer with. Hey, guy, hey, guy, what do you think? Oh, I think I do too, right? Jesus doesn't know what's going on. How could he be a prophet if he were to allow this sort of woman, this sinful woman, to touch him? And sadly, I think we fall into those traps of feeling like as those who are right we are the ones who have the right to evaluate and critique everybody else. Uh, you know, a few years ago, I was playing soccer with a group of friends at a park. This was back in Charlottesville. And to be honest, I mean, I was on fire that day. I was playing pretty great. And uh, I had a hat trick in the first half. Uh, I'd perfected my uh, celebration dance by riding the, um, the flag in the corner like a bull. And uh, I felt awesome, but not only did I feel awesome, that day I was awesome. And so at the end of the game, like I'm walking back to the car with my uh, then 13-year-old son and my 10-year-old daughter at the time, and they said, Dad, uh, I think it's time that you play with people your own age. And, 
right? I'd been playing with their friends, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I thought they were terrible. Um, they were pathetic at soccer. Uh, America doesn't have a chance in the future. Uh, but oftentimes, that's how we sort of walk through life, and we measure ourselves by everyone else, and life becomes about winning and losing and who's better and who's worse. And the good news of Jesus is that Jesus is the one who welcomes sinners, that he does not welcome us because we are righteous, but Jesus has come to welcome us and to forgive us and to give us his own righteousness because he loves us. And this is why the woman is filled with love and gratitude, because she knows that Jesus is a man and is God who will receive her, sins and all. And therefore, there's no need to hide, there's no need to pretend. And so she fully gives herself in love to Christ. Because he who has been forgiven little loves little, but she who has been forgiven much loves much. Let's pray.